Jesus. Who do you think you are? You came riding into town. You claimed to be God. The people lined the streets and shouted, Hosanna! Oh, it looked like they loved you. But they didn't. They did not love you. They did not heed your words. They were not your friends. They were your enemies. And before the week had even ended, they crucified you. And now, here you are, nailed on a cross, naked and weak. Of course, the only reason I'm here is because I know what you're really up to. You're paying for something. You have been crowned with guilt, the shame of all the people you love. The mistakes of every person. That nagging selfishness that emerges from the womb like a cancer that never stops growing. The cheating, the backstabbing, the despicable things they wish upon others. All the secrets kept under wraps, kept behind closed doors. I can see you pushing with your feet, trying to breathe underneath the weight of it all. All the petty anger and prideful the blatant disregard for others, the lack of compassion, the insistence of entitlement, the material obsessions, the unspeakable amounts of money they spend on looking good while their fellow humans are starving. What does it feel like knowing that all of this is on you now? Every divorce, every abandonment, every deadbeat dad, every gunshot, every kid lying dead in the street, the men who kidnap girls and sell their dignity for a few dollars, all the insecure rage and outbursts, the I hate you, the I'll do what I want, the pornographic addictions, the jealousy, the idols, the celebration of vanity, the constant pursuit of look at me, look at me, look at me. All I can see is a world drowning in sin and suffering. I realize these were not your doing. Nonetheless, I'm happy for you to be taking the blame. Humanity has done a fine job with this, but I'll take it from here. Before we're done, I just have to ask, what kind of person claims he can forgive the whole world? Who do you think you are? Dear Death, I got your letter. My apologies for it taking a few days to write back. I had some important work to finish. I know you weren't expecting me to reply, but I'm always eager to provide the answer to a good question. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am the eternity before history. I am the potter who spun the galaxies. I am the spirit over the deep and the one who tells mountains to migrate. I am the cloud of day, the fire of night. I am the co-conspirator behind the scandal of grace. I am the keeper of the books 
I am well aware of the debts that line the pages of every generation, and today I am stamping each and every one of them paid in full. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you. I am the just and furious wrath that makes hell look like a campfire. And I am the towering wave of mercy that can quench its thirsty flame. I am the billowing storm of love that sits on every horizon. And my goodness rains down on both the wicked and the righteous. I am the redeemer of wasted years. I am the welcome home to every prodigal son. I am the voice in the ear of every young girl whispering, I created you. And you were created beautiful. I am faithful even to the faithless. My name is salvation. My name is power, even power over you. Do you really want to know who I am? I am the foot on your head. I am the spear in your side. I am the one author of this story. I am the one holding the pen. And I will block you out with a single stroke of my hand. I will have the last word because I am the word. And death, I am here to give you a word. On Friday, you weren't attending my funeral. You were attending yours. The nails in my hand will be the ones in your coffin. And just to be clear, I was not a victim of human plans and I was certainly never a slave to you. I am the victor. I am the master. I am the one who sets the captives free. And not only have I broken your grip on me, but I will pry your fingers from all who call my name. You are done. You are powerless. Your work is null and void. Pack up your bags. Go and tell your friends. It is finished. you're still wondering, who do I think I am? I'll tell you who. I am. Sincerely, Jesus. I guess we could be done. Um, it's a, it's a little, uh, I don't even know how to follow that. Um, my name's Howie. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, um, sorry, I've watched that thing like six times. And every time there's a phrase that's different that grabs me. And so, uh, <laughs> sorry for a moment. Um, yeah, like I said, my name's Howie. I'm one of the pastors here. My family and I have been attending the well for the last uh, three years. And I uh, came on staff as a pastor last May. Yeah. And this is my uh, first opportunity to get to speak with you this morning. Yeah. And so I am I'm super excited. Like, it's really, uh, it's really a privilege, and I take it um, weighty to be able to take God's word and try to help it sink for you. That, that's really my job here. And so whether you're in person or here, and you, or you're in Auditorium 2, or you're online, 
You brave the snow. Welcome to like third winter, I think we're at now, right? Um, I'm just glad you're here. And, and um, taking the time to uh, come and worship together as a community, taking the time to come and learn together as a community, these are all valuable things that I don't take lightly and we shouldn't take for granted. We know even with people traveling for spring break, uh, might be lighter in here or lighter in auditorium too, but all I can say is just enjoy the elbow room while you have it. Easter's coming, and we're going to have a bunch of people here for Easter, which is super exciting. Um, last week, we celebrated Legacy Sunday, and it was awesome. Um, I'm going to let Pastor Jason and Erica uh, let you know what happened with that. I don't want to steal their thunder and, uh, and any of that. Uh, really exciting, though, just to hear how many people, how many people just said, yeah, I want to participate in this. And I just think that's super cool. Um, but right now, we're getting ready for Easter. Yeah. Like, Easter is awesome. Do you guys realize how awesome Easter is? Sometimes we get super excited for Christmas. And uh, Easter is the holiday, though. Yeah. Easter is the high, holy Christian holiday. Without the resurrection, this is all just a waste of our time. And so we get to celebrate it together. And just like, uh, I'm so excited for these weeks leading up. So we have, uh, we have, it's three, we have three Sundays, um, including Easter and then Good Friday as well, that we'll be uh, doing services all through. We have um, our regular ones this week and next week. And we have a Good Friday service on the Friday before Easter. And then on Easter Sunday, we get four services. And uh, it'll be awesome. We'll see these seats filled with people that uh, come out just a couple times a year. It's kind of their, their rhythm. And we get to tell them about who Jesus is. Yeah. And it's just so awesome. So I'm really excited. So today, week one of our Easter series is going to be on the person of Jesus. Next week, we'll be talking about the procession. It's Palm Sunday. We talk about God or Jesus' place, what his, um, his position is. Uh, Fr Good Friday will be the piercing be Jesus crucifixion and then the power when we talk about the resurrection we've got some alliterations going on so person procession piercing and power that everything we're talking about leads up to Easter so I'm super excited for it um, today well uh, we have a so we have it every time we do start a series we choose an anchor verse or passage or something that we anchor our whole series on and so I'd like to read what it is for uh, for this series for Easter and uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Colossians 1, 15 through 23, it'll also be up on the screen. But Colossians 1 reads like this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as, ex as expressed in your evil actions. But now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. 
if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Can we pray together this morning as we get started? Father, you've promised that your word does not return void, and so I pray as we dig into your scripture that it would come back full. I pray that your spirit would work in here, that, um, yeah, that my words would not be my words. Pray that you would work through the preparation that I've done, but ultimately, even like that video we watched, would there be a phrase or something that hits each person? And would you speak in that and work in that and move in that? We just hand today over to you. We worship together, we learn together, and we thank you together. Amen. Right, so as I said, today we're talking about the person of Jesus. Uh, as I mentioned, this is my first opportunity to speak with you, and so when I told people that I was preparing a sermon, they are like, what is your sermon on? I was like, Jesus. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but, but, but what really? We get that. No, but it is. It's Jesus today. That's what we're doing. It's a Sunday school answer to everything Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to dive in. Uh, the title of my message today is, if you're taking notes, Who Do You Say I Am? Who do you say I am? We watched that video, which is really awesome. Who do you think you are? But Jesus is asking this question of us. He presents it to his disciples in Matthew 16, 13 through 15. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say I am? Like it or not, I'm of the firm belief that this is the most important question we can answer. I think we have to come face to face with it. Because the reality of it is that we can, we can push it aside, but it will constantly present itself to us. Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? Really, it's a challenge for most of us. We don't know. Like, if we're really honest, we just don't know. You might never have thought about it. You know, does he look like that picture we see hanging in so many homes? Maybe he looks like John Legend from Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> have you taken the time to imagine his face, his features? How tall is he? Is he rugged? Is he, did he, would he blend in with a crowd? I think it's important that we address this. Maybe for you, Jesus is more of an idea rather than even a person. It might be, give you the warm fuzzies like Santa Claus. Maybe it makes you really uncomfortable, like the idea of Marxism or something else like that. Or maybe you're completely indifferent, like when you think about President Chester A. Arthur, right? <laughs> I, he's probably a nice guy, but I haven't thought twice about him um, since high school. <laughs> maybe for you, Jesus is an example to try to live up to. Maybe he's a list of moral and ethical ideas that you're striving for. Piece of advice on that, if you're trying to live up to the example of Jesus, you're not gonna do it. You've already failed. So stop trying so hard. Jesus isn't meant to be an example. He's meant to be your savior. So Jesus of Nazareth is a real person. Do you realize that? He's a real flesh and blood person. 
There's historical evidence of it. He's as real as Julius Caesar, Attila the Hun, Socrates, or anybody else throughout human history. N.T. Wright, who's a brilliant New Testament scholar, spoke in a lecture I listened to uh, recently, and he said this, it's not enough to know that Jesus is your savior. You must know who Jesus himself was and is. Otherwise, simply saying Jesus lives within my heart, or I have a sense that Jesus loves me, or whatever else like that can easily turn into a fantasy. He goes on to say, unless it's earth in the actuality of who Jesus is, how do you know that it's not just wish fulfillment? Here's a paraphrase of what else he goes on to say. We need to be able to say the Jesus I pray to and serve is recognizably the one who walked and talked and lived and died and rose again in the first century. Our faith needs to be rooted in this actual person. It can't just be an idea. It can't be all ethereal and out there. There's ample evidence of Jesus through contemporaries that wrote about him, such as Josephus or Tacitus. Josephus was a Jewish historian hired by Romans in the first century to give an account of what was happening in the nation of Israel at the time. And he wrote about a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who had many followers, historical record. Tacitus was a Roman historian that went to find evidence of him in the late first century um, and came back with reports of what his followers uh, were doing. And so today I hope to challenge some of your assumptions about Jesus. I hope he does some work to point out uh, who he is and why he's worthy of the worship that we just participated in together. Because his humanity and his divinity have to go side by side. We have to hold them together or we're not worshiping Jesus. So let's go back to our passage. We're in Colossians 1, 15. It says there, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Pastor Jason does this. So in uh, honor of him, everybody say number one. Number one. one. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1.15 again. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I love this word image. A lot of times when we start to think about image, we might think about our reputation or this thing that we have to project, whether it's in person or on social media or whatever, that there's an image that we have to like uh, uh, really shape and curate in order to present it to somebody so that we can be accepted, right? Or at least tolerated. But the use of image um, isn't like that in the Bible because it doesn't need protecting. If your image needs protecting, it lacks truth. But in the Bible, we read that the image is that Jesus' image is of God. And if you've you've read the Bible, especially from the beginning, if you've ever started in the beginning, as soon as you read this idea of what an image is, that Jesus is the image of God, you would jump all the way back to creation when there's fish and land and water all being created. We read this in Genesis 1, 26 or 27. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So what we find in Colossians 1 is that Jesus is the image of God. And from Genesis 1, we learn that male and female 
are made in the image of God. So there's some resemblance together. You know, it's not something that needs to be curated. It's something that is given to us, that we are made in. It doesn't have to be um, hidden or anything like that. We're, we're made in God's image. So when we understand that Jesus is the image of God and we are made in the image of God, there's a close relationship between Jesus and humanity. But Jesus isn't created. He's not made. He is. In Colossians 1.15, Paul's describing Jesus as connected to God by being the image of the invisible God. And Jesus, described as the image of God, is connected to the human race through this designation as well. It's really a beautiful play on words. There's an association, an interconnectedness between Jesus and humanity that is distinctly unique. He's human. He's divine. He's divinely human, and he's humanly divine. Let me give you an illustration that might help out here. So I am a child of the 80s. Do we have any children of the 80s in this room? What is the best day of the week when you're a child of the 80s? Saturday, Saturday, Saturday morning cartoons, right? I would set my alarm clock for Saturday morning cartoons because unlike you folks that only know streaming, in the 80s, if you missed it, you missed it. It never came back again. So if you were watching something and you missed it, you'd come back the next week and be like, I don't even know what happened. I don't understand what's happening in the story. So I would set my alarm clock. I would get up for Saturday morning cartoons. And one of the ones that I would watch without fail was Super Friends. Super Friends, yes. It was always packaged right by G.I. Joe and the Smurfs, you know, somewhere in there. Super Friends was all of our DC Comics superheroes, right? So you had Superman, Batman and Robin, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and then always some weird pairing of somebody else. Sometimes it was these twins, and other times it was this boy and girl in a weird ripoff of Scooby-Doo. I don't know. It was just always kind of a weird thing. They were like side characters. But in Super Friends, the de facto head of Super Friends, do you guys know who it is? The de facto super, uh, super Friend lead head person was Superman. Bad out. They sat at this big, like, concrete table where they would have to yell across it, but Superman was always the guy in charge. And Superman was always really simple. There's a simplicity about Superman that was always appealing when I was a kid because you always knew that he was going to make the right choice. He was going to do the right thing. He was good, and whatever he was against was bad. And so it just made life less complex. But Superman's a liar. Because <laughs> Super, Superman had a phrase. He would say, truth, justice, and the American way. So he always felt good about it because he was after those things. But this is a man who constantly hid his identity. Right? He wasn't about truth. He wasn't about justice. He was a vigilante. He'd like tie random people up and leave them in the corner. There's no, there's no jury. There's no judge. And... This is the craziest part to me. The American way, the dude wasn't even an earthling, let alone an American. So it always baffled me. But, so, but Superman had all these powers, all this power and authority conveyed on him, and yet completely unrelatable. I couldn't relate to Superman. I can't fly to make the earth go backwards and go back in time. Like I, It's not relatable to me one bit. And oftentimes we look at Jesus like this. 
We don't do it on purpose, we just do it inadvertently. We picture him as the superhero God come to earth as somebody that we can't relate to one bit. And the thing is, is that Jesus' humanity and divinity are absolutely inseparable by nature. It's who he is. But even though they're inseparable by nature, Jesus puts self-imposed limitations to his divine power. What we read in Philippians 2, 5 through 7 is this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Have you thought about Jesus' humanity lately? Have you thought about his flesh and blood? I think sometimes at Christmas it's a little easier. We get a little a baby, like a baby somewhat tangible in this straw manger. But have you ever thought of Jesus as a teenager? Did you ever wonder if he got zits? <laughs> if a girl had a crush on him? If he smashed his thumb with a hammer? His voice starts cracking. Maybe he smashes his thumb with a hammer as he's working with his dad. Maybe he's trying to struggle through what it's like to gain independence while still honoring his parents. You ever thought what it would be like for Jesus as a human? So today I want to lean into that some. Because we talk frequently in here, we have a tendency to sanitize the Bible. And so when we sanitize it, we make it all clean, neat, and orderly. It is not meant to be that way. It is just not the reality. When I did this in preparation for the sermon over this past week, because I read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I just jotted down all the things that Jesus did, the very normal, everyday-ish kind of things that he did. Some of them aren't everyday-ish, but I wrote down just all the things that he did. I tried to grab all the verbs. Most of them are word for word. Some of them I paraphrased because it's really long. And um, I asked the team to put them on the screen behind me. Take a moment and just try to read some of these. They're um, really amazing. I just, I love simple stuff like he had brothers and sisters, right? He hid. really simple things that Jesus did. He, he was disobeyed. Parents, are you with me on this one? You relate to that? He was misunderstood by his parents. Teenagers, you relate to that one? I just think this brings a lot of humanity to who Jesus is and what he's about. One of the things that really, I don't know why, I love this one so much. He rode in a boat. I just kind of like that because I feel like if Jesus was here today, he probably would have rode the bus or you'd see him on a bicycle going down the street. It's just very normal, very real things. But he's someone who eats dinner, but he's also someone who's misunderstood. He's someone that walks from city to city, but he's also someone who's rejected. He's not Superman. He's our Jesus. So I want to point out just a couple of instances to help illustrate really the depths of Jesus' humanity and ultimately the character of God. Because it's not that we over-spiritualize Jesus. All the songs that we sang this morning were of an incredibly immense, powerful God. And that is the reality of who Jesus is. The thing is that, is that we under-humanize him. We tend to take the story of Jesus' life 
extract all the ethical and theological pieces from it and discard the rest. So I want to point out two things. Do you know Jesus cries two times in the Bible? Yes. He cries two times. So we're going to look at both of those. The first one's in John 11, 32 through 37. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was, was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So Mary, her sister Martha, and their brother Lazarus are a family that Jesus is very close to. And Lazarus has died. And Jesus knew it was happening, and he took his sweet time getting there. Mary's coming to him. Mary's upset. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? What a juxtaposition, right? Loved him, couldn't he have done something about it? Jesus had already told Mary's sister Martha what was going to happen in the situation. He had told Martha he's going to rise again. So now he goes into the situation to see where Lazarus is buried and he cries. Why does he cry? You thought about it? Why does he cry? Jesus saw Mary and others weeping. And even though he knew the outcome, he wept. I'm going to help you memorize a verse today. We're going to memorize John 11:35, right? So say after me, John 11:35. 11, Jesus wept. You did it. Good job. Shortest verse in the Bible. You got it. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. This is worth memorizing. Why is it worth memorizing? Because of this. The heart of Jesus, and therefore the heart of God, is compassion for those in pain. The heart of Jesus, and therefore the heart of God, is compassion for those in pain. The second instance where Jesus cries is found in Luke 19, 41 through 42. It says, as he approached and saw the city, this is the city of Jerusalem, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. So the city is Jerusalem, and the event is his parade. He's crying at his own parade. They are celebrating him, and he's weeping. We celebrate this on Palm Sunday. This is our celebration of Palm Sunday. They're waving palm fronds, throwing their clothes out in front of him, cheering Hosanna, and he's crying. Why is he crying? Well, Jesus has repeatedly expressed to those in the city their need for him, and they've refused. Jesus saw a city of people far away from him. They missed it. They were missing it. The very point of his arrival. He was right in front of them. They witnessed miracles. They had seen him in flesh and blood, and they still missed it. Sometimes we say, man, if only I was there. I don't know. There's a lot of people there that missed it. So why does he cry here? The heart of Jesus, and therefore the heart of God, is compassion for those who reject or deny him. 
The heart of Jesus and therefore the heart of God is compassion for those who reject or deny him. You might be in this room and you're like, I'm here, but I'm here because my girlfriend brought me. I'm here because my parents made me come. Jesus' heart is for you because you reject or deny him. It is still full for you. And this is why, because Jesus knows the reality of what happens when he's rejected. It has outcome on your life and on your death. So he weeps for it. He knows what he brings to your life. John 10.10 says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Jesus knows what he brings to death. We watch this video. It's awesome, right? For God loved the world in this way, it says in John 3.16. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Death loses its sting. All right, everybody, shout number two. Number two, Jesus provides peace. Jesus provides peace. We read in this earlier passage in Luke, it says, And as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. He's talking to the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has not experienced peace. It's always been in conflict for eons. Jerusalem is one of the most fought over cities in the world. But in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, we read this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So now when we think of peace, so often we think of the absence of conflict, right? Just if, con if there wasn't any conflict in my life, then I would have peace. Or we might even think of it as the state of bliss, right? If, it, if everything was just, just okay around me, then, then I would be euphoric, right? But peace does has never meant that in Scripture. Because when we go back, what we find is the word peace lines up with the idea of shalom. So the Hebrew word is shalom. And the Jews would use it as a greeting, as a farewell. Ultimately, what it means is wholeness. It's a wholeness. It's things made right. It's things made back to the way they were created in that garden in Genesis 1 that we read about earlier. Man and woman made in God's image. Man and woman in perfect relationship together. Man and woman with perf in perfect relationship with God. That's wholeness. Wholeness is in our relationships, both vertically and horizontally. And when it comes to wholeness, most of us know that we lack it. We can sense it in our own being. It's an innate feeling. It really initiates two different responses inside of us. The first one is we search. We search to find wholeness. And we strive to bring wholeness to our life through any number of things. It could be through money or achievement or some kind of prestige. It might be through adventure. You might just be looking for that next rush to find wholeness in you. It might be an acceptance. If someone could just accept me for who I am, that will make me whole. I don't know how many relationships you've had 
That doesn't really happen. We're always searching for it. No one, A, no one's really willing to accept us just the way that we are. And B, if they were, we're not okay the way that we are. We need God's work in our life. You don't need somebody to complete you. You just need to become a whole person. We strive so hard trying to present this thing that maybe somebody will love so that we can get acceptance to feel whole when God just wants to make us whole himself. And that's what he's saying. I bring peace. I bring wholeness. I bring shalom. He accepts you as you are and over time transforms you into a whole new you. A whole you. And we call that a new creation. Blaise Pascal, who's a 17th century thinker, says it this way, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. The second thing that we do is we give up. So the first one's very active. We're searching, but for this one's very passive. You exist. You're just making it through. The days are kind of gray. There's moments, moments in them, but they feel dull. Our response, we might try to medicate or entertain our way through the day. Sometimes we can fake it. We can be around some people. We can, we can fake it for a while, but then when we're all alone, we feel that weight. But here's the beautiful thing. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making shalom, wholeness, through his blood shed on the cross. Joy, hope, contentment, forgiveness, purpose, reconciliation with others, confidence in my identity, that kind of confidence that can withstand all the hard things that come at you through life. That's shalom. That's wholeness. Do you want this kind of wholeness? Do you know how to get it? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Number three. Three. Jesus died for you. That's a singular you, and that's a plural you. So Jesus died for you, and Jesus died for you. In Colossians 1, 21 through 22, it states, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Guys, Good Friday and Easter are coming. This is our celebration of what Jesus has done for us. But again, we sanitize this and we simplify it. We take away the humanity of Jesus and his death. N.T. Wright again says, we think Jesus went through life automatically like some sort of supernatural robot who went off to die for the sins of the world. We look at it as he was pre-programmed. There was no difficulty in it, that he didn't have to battle through any of this. But that's not the reality. In fact, when we, one of the, the instances where we see Jesus' humanity in its rawest is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to read that in Mark 14, 32 through 42. Then they came to a place 
named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John, his closest friends, with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. You want your closest friends with you when you feel deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. And he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, calls out Peter, could have called out the other guys, but he says to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake an hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. I wonder here when he's talking to Peter about the spirit being willing and the flesh being weak, is he talking about Peter's spirit and flesh? Is he talking about his own? I think there's a both and in this. Once again, he went and prayed, saying the same thing, and again he came and found them sleeping because they couldn't keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time's come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. When we're in a moment like this with Jesus, like, that Jesus is in, when we're in a moment similar to this, we don't do so well in it. We don't place ourselves in, these, in too many spots where we say to God, not your will but mine, or not my will but yours. Usually it's the other way around. Not your will but mine. I'm going to do what I want. We don't wrestle over this. But Jesus has personal and relational turmoil in this garden. He brought the three people closest to him. They failed him. You guys ever felt failed by people close to you? Jesus says he's deeply grieved in Mark 14, 34. He says to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. I love the poetry in this. Deeply grieved is, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. Have you ever felt that way? Has your soul ever been swallowed up in sorrow? So just prior to this story, Peter says that he would die for Jesus. And Jesus is like, dude, you can't even stay awake. What makes you think you can die for me? He's broken in this. People have let him down. Luke 22, 44 says it this way, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is anguish. Jesus has been let down and he also knows there's real nails, real beatings, a real cross and a real death coming his way. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8 says, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus prayed and was told no. Have you gotten some no's in your life from God? 
are those difficult to walk through and to wrestle through and to wait through and to struggle through and ask questions about it and God could you just make it different and he's told you no Philippians 2 says when he come as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even a death on a cross Jesus was not teaching us how to be a better human or a perfect human he was teaching us how to be a whole human he showed us what it's like to truly live as we were created, and that's in submission to the will of God. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So our question comes back again, who do you say I am? Matthew 16 again, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, his friend who failed him in the garden, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. I love it here. Pastor Jason often asks, What would you do if Jesus was in the room? And we sing songs like, All hail King Jesus, right? And I, all of me in there is like, oh, I, I think I would bow. I think I would raise my hands. I think... Maybe I'd cry, maybe I'd be excited, maybe I wouldn't even be able to look at him, I don't know. But the question I was thinking about today as we deal with the humanity of Jesus, is what do you think Jesus would do if he was in this room? How do you think he would respond to you, knowing all that you are? I think Jesus would put his hands on your shoulders and say, I know what it's like to be heartbroken. I know what it's like to ride in a boat. But I know what it's like to be disappointed. And I know what it's like to question God's will. I know what it's like to be betrayed and forgotten, scoffed at. But I also think he'd say, son, daughter, I did this for you. I love you with my whole being. I thought of you when I rode into Jerusalem and I cried. And I thought of you in that garden when I cried out. And I thought of you when I was failed and I thought of you when I was beaten and I thought of you when I was put on that cross. There's humanity in him. And what we have in that is a connection to him not in an idea way, but in a real person, grounded in reality. Jesus can say, I know, I know what it was like, and I did it for you. It was your sin and my love that put me on that cross. So today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to this. Jesus can relate to you, 
But it's not supposed to end there. He wants a relationship with you. The king of the universe wants to be your friend. And if you want that today, if you're looking for something, how do I get this wholeness in my life? I have that God-shaped vacuum that I need filled. And would you just pray this prayer with me? We don't want to leave anybody out so everybody can pray along with me. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for bringing wholeness to my life. I desire wholeness. So I say yes to your gift. And my desire is to follow you all the days of my life.